0: Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We are your host, Stephen Craig. And Parker Dolman. This is episode 140.
1: So, yeah, Um, that RTL software defined radio, apparently I was calling it Signal Defined Radio all last podcast. Oh, have people been correcting you? Oh, yeah. (laughs) I think I have like 40 emails.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. And, so and it's it funny is, because before last podcast, you, you, we had talked for a while about software defined radio, like, and we were calling it that yes. it didn't even click in my mind.
1: <laughs> yes. So the software defined radio, I finally got something kind of working. Cool. It's called RTL underscore FM. And it's kind of like a command that you can call. It. It's part of like the RTL underscore SDR, like package that you can install on Linux. And so you can, like, tune the frequencies and stuff like that. So it's pretty easy to use. You basically just, like, it basically outputs uh, the sound through standard out in Linux. Uh, It's, like, signed 16-bit or something like that. And then you just pipe that directly into, like, player and plays Hmm. music or whatever you're picking up. Um, So it seems to work fine for FM stuff and anything, like... Up to the ceiling of that uh, software-defined radio, which I can't remember how high it goes. Like I think it's like one gigahertz, but uh, I can't seem to get AM to work all too well. Really? Like what? 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 What's the symptom? Well, so the minimal that this thing can technically tune to is twenty-four megahertz,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and AM is like five hundred kilohertz to one thousand fifty, I think, kilohertz so like 1.05 megahertz anyways so to make that work is you have to directly sample the signal and there's some special modes that you can like make it work but it seems that the uh, RTL underscore FM just doesn't really support that it's got like a direct mode um, option that you can use but it doesn't seem to work I can't get it to receive audio over AM. If I plug it into my Windows computer and run, I think it's like SDR. Let me see. SDR sharp, which is like a GUI based signal defined radio, software defined radio, (laughs) Uh, software defined radio, um, pack uh, software suite. I can I can make the AM work. It has direct sampling. You just click it and you can do it.
0: Well, and when you when you say direct sampling, it's not sampling; uh, it's it's undersampling, right? It's because it, it's only trying to pick up the audio, not the carrier, right? I mean, it's not it's not fully sampling a, the the one megahertz
1: wave, right? Yeah, that's what it's doing. Hmm, okay, so it's 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 doing the full signal bandwidth and then rejecting the high frequency stuff. You're you're reading the whole spectrum in, or that you're reading in your that carrier frequency, and your your software is doing a demodulation
0: huh okay it's interesting that's sampling pretty quick i guess
1: yeah and so the am works for some reason on sdr sharp and it does not work in rtl fm or rtl sdr i've tried some like linux-based gui applications i can't remember they escape me which ones i've tried but they don't seem to work either so i don't know what the problem is there um and some, some, some people, I've, I've been asking around, a lot of people say for me to use an up converter. So basically it will up convert the AM signal to into the band of the normal band that this uh, uh, software-defined radio reads, which is an option. The thing with that is basically if I need to switch between just reading the, the antenna directly versus uh, the up converter is I have to switch... Like the audio, the uh, signal path mm. on the on the PCB, I guess. And I don't know what the best way to do that would be. I don't know if you can get away with relays, or you should use like a special signal chip or something.
0: Yeah, you could just use an analog switch, I bet. Yeah, probably. Yeah, like one of the DG four whatever. I can't remember the part numbers. They I know they start with DG, <laughs> but you could probably just use one of those, I bet.
1: Yeah, that'll probably work. I, I've never done switching on like analog stuff before. So,
0: yeah, I guess you just have to look and see if it's going to load it weird at that frequency. You know,
1: yeah, make sure it passes the basically the entire spectrum that the software defined radio can.
0: <laughs> it's going to trip you up every single time now. Oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> Maybe because I'm overthinking it now. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this, yeah. So I make, make sure that the switch can can handle the the, the frequencies. Um, I mean, do you even listen to AM? Yeah, yeah. I, I listen to some of the news and and sports on AM.
0: Oh, okay, okay.
1: And also, what's interesting is that the RTL FM doesn't support stereo sound; it's mono only, hmm. which was interesting. There's some people who've hacked or. I won't say hack, they rewrote some of that software and I set to compile like a different version of RTL-FM and I can get stereo then. So I haven't tried that yet, but give it a shot soon. Maybe after the podcast. And then I started looking around for like other software-defined radios. And I found this one, it's R820TP7K5. If you just like Google that, it'll pop up. But it does 100 kilohertz to 1.7 gigahertz wow it'll do the the whole thing it does the whole thing but the 100 kilohertz now that's underneath the AM band so and this thing's almost about the same price as the one I I bought it's like $8 more so I might try ordering this one and see if it will do AM basically out of the box and I don't have to worry about switching
0: yeah that sounds like a good option just because switching sounds like a pain in the butt you know, yeah. you'd have to design something around it and then you'd have to work. I don't know. That's eh, it's a little too much. It seems like, especially yeah. for something that feels like it should be all in one. Correct.
1: Yeah. And yeah. so, yeah, that's where the software defined radio project is at now. I'm hoping hey. by next update, I'm probably going to buy this R820TP7K5 radio thing. And probably just go that route. And uh, yeah, and hopefully have some kind of like interface making that work. Cool. Did, uh, from last podcast, did you
0: come up with any secret tricks on uh, working with a Raspberry Pi and having it not be so messy?
1: No, it is a ginormous mess right here. It's still messy. <laughs> um, I'll I'm, I'm, I'm probably try to figure that out i started looking for like Raspberry Pi cases like desktop cases and stuff basically like it needs to like to contain the power supply and everything in the box go get a usps priority box and put everything inside of it <laughs> make sure it's a little greasy and wet and then run 240 volt through it at 50 amps
0: exactly right yeah
1: you got it <laughs> it it seems to work right <laughs> yeah 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 so if for those that don't that haven't listened to that episode that was like man that was a long time ago episode like 30 or something like that yeah but steven made a his electric brewery rig and he needed a brew and so he slammed all the electronics inside of a USPS box yeah
0: i ran a few
1: thousand watts through that box
0: <laughs> and i got some delicious beer because of
1: it <laughs> and it did not burn down your your apartment no it did not <laughs> um and then let's see what else i've been doing the I've been working a bit with KeyCad, but not like learning how to lay out boards in KiCad. When are you going to get around to that? Never. <laughs> 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 but I've been working with the KeyCad Python API. And. Basically, I wrote some scripts that can automatically generate uh, the Gerbers, like your your PCB Gerbers, and the MacFab uh, XYS formats. So, because right now on MacFab, it only when you upload a KiCad PCB, you only get the XYS. You still need to generate Gerbers locally and upload them. And so, hopefully, in the future you just upload a pcb and it generates the gerbers for you too for kicad like it does for eagle
0: right 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 which you've had the eagle thing going for a long time
1: yeah e- eagle was pretty easy to get rolling on on the server side but kicad it took a while for their python api stuff to manifest i guess is a good word for it <laughs> and it's been around for about 2 years now and i finally got around to actually working with it the Problem with the KiCad API Python stuff is there is no documentation, so you just got to figure it all out. Yeah, the documentation is like the code. Oh, <laughs> on on GitHub, right? Yeah, well, they have like a a do, uh, a Doxy, I think it's called Doxy. Doxy like documentation thing, mm-hmm. but it's just it gives you the methods and the classes and stuff, and you're like, okay if i call this cl- this uh class what attributes does it have i don't know i just have to start basically ramming attributes that i think exists and see if i get stuff <laughs> so it's
0: incomplete documentation is what you're saying
1: there's zero documentation for the for this thing if someone knows where the documentation lives for the python api please let me know honestly if anyone would know it would be one of our listeners yes
0: yeah so uh, what do you have working on that so far? I mean, do you have anything that actually does anything yet?
1: Oh, it, it, I finished it all up today.
0: Oh, okay. Okay. So that's going to go
1: live sometime soon? Uh, on the website, the factory. Um, I don't know what the ETA is because a developer in you know, quotes uh, has to do that. <laughs> I So I wrote some Python scripts that make it work. And so it's basically like, a proof of concept that if you implement it this way it will work
0: okay so they have to they have to take that and they have to massage it and push it and make sure it does all the the good jazz with all the rest of the plugins and everything
1: yeah exactly so they have to make sure you know they have to build the infrastructure around it i did i did technically the easy part yeah for sure um it definitely was the most fun part (laughs) because all (laughs) the other stuff's not fun (laughs)
0: well that's why you don't do it
1: Exactly. Yeah. Okay,
0: so you've proven that it works. in In the next, I don't know what few it months, probably be two it'll,
1: months, it'll probably pop yeah. up. Cool. Yeah. And I'll, I'll, we'll put an announcement on the on the podcast when it's up and running. Sure. So I think the next one I'm going to try to work on a lot is Altium now. Yeah. Because that's a that's a big. A lot of our customers use Altium, and right now we it's a ODB plus plus export, which is fine. It's just annoying yeah i'd like to be more like here's just my file and then it all works i think you're gonna spend a lot more time on that than you did on key probably you know i only spent about a half a day about a about one day so eight hours on the KeyCAD stuff and most of it was just like punching in stuff and seeing okay i need to get like the value out but i don't know how to get that out of the class because it doesn't tell you so like you click the class and it's just like okay that's the class and there's like the description is nothing <laughs> i don't have the attributes how how do i get that stuff you know that's actually one one thing that i think i've
0: found uh, kind of annoying about the differences between eda tools is not like putting schematic symbols down or you know talking about footprints or patterns or anything like that but figuring out first of all you as the designer figuring out where to put your part numbers for the parts. Mm-hmm. And then if you're trying to read someone else's work where they put their part numbers because yeah. most EDA tools give you options on where you want to put them. And in some ways I find that kind of annoying actually. I wish there was just more cuz maybe I'm wrong. In fact, I know I am wrong in, on this, but I like to have my manufacturing part numbers in my schematic of my, you know, electronic files. Yeah, I, I do too. But 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 not everyone does that. A lot of people will just run a paper bomb that references the schematic. And so it just references the ref devs on there. And then, so you always have to have you know an Excel sheet and a schematic up and that's fine. And I've worked that way before, but I don't know. I guess it's just a personal preference. And it doesn't seem like there's like a really good universal way that EDA tools allow for it, just because I've worked you know, on probably at least six or seven different EDA tools. And I shouldn't say extensively, but enough to know what's going on. And you have to do something. It feels very different in each one to just say this part is this.
1: Yeah. And Eagle, what I do is I use the attribute function. And so I make a attribute MPN and then you just put the MPN there. Right. Uh, and then MacFab, actually, we wrote the Eagle parser to just pull the MPN out
0: and and you know that's 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 cool and all and that's great because it, ha- it like you've created a really default way but you created that eagle didn't create that correct and that's kind of a little bit annoying and and you know dip trace does the exact same thing when you click on a part in dip trace you have a handful of attributes that you can apply to it but manufacturing part number is actually not any of those values there's hmm. you know there's reference designator there's value and then there's name Mm -hmm. and none of those are manufacturing part numbers now typically i put the manufacturing part number in the name category such that when i export a bomb i can you know just dump the name and then you know if i want to i can change that column in excel to manufacturing part number but it doesn't have a default you know place to put a part number and i find that kind of annoying actually
1: yeah i actually part of this uh parser stuff I, I wrote for keycad is i defined how would you do mpns in keycad yeah. for MacroFab, and it's interesting because keycad uh on the pcb file you can't put custom fields for parts yeah you can only do it in the schematic and so you can add a mpn field there and so what it does is if you also upload your Keycat schematic file it will look into the fields and look for mpn and if mpn exists pull that out and use that as the manufacturer part number sure so, so hopefully in the next couple of months that's that's live so it sounds like it's it's just a lot of housekeeping to get it there yeah i it should be the three there should be three values for parts reference designator value and then mpn right and then footprint or slash package so four
0: well yeah but the but the footprint package thing can is sort of different in a way um in in terms of like you're defining that but you're not you're defining it by like actually selecting a footprint as opposed to just like typing it in a field whereas i agree the reference designator which i shouldn't have to Put that in myself. That should automatically increment when I place a new component. The value uh, that's that's up to me entirely, and the manufacturing part number is up to me. But those three should always exist, in my opinion.
1: Yes. Yeah. So EDA tool designers, that are listening, do that. Uh, maybe we're missing something. Maybe <laughs>
0: there's some secret sauce that
1: that you know.
0: Maybe there's a good reason not to have manufacturing part
1: numbers in your schematic file. I don't see why. But I don't see why either. I I do it all the time. Mm-hmm. So. And that's our biggest, you know, thing from customers. Like, how can I get my MPNs in easier? It's like, spreadsheets?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right, because there's not a good way. Yeah. I I like having my schematic as kind of my master. My layout references Mm -hmm. my schematic. My bill of materials, you know, the genesis of my bill of materials is my schematic. Like, I pull my bill of materials out of it. I'm not creating my bill of materials as a separate file. I literally Mm -hmm. export it. And that, that way I have a single point of all information and that if I, if I modify my bill of materials, I typically start by modifying the schematic and then adjusting the bill of materials. It just, I don't know, one point of, of, of data sounds correct
1: to me. One source of truth.
0: Yeah, there, there can only be one, except most EDA tools have more than one.
1: Yes. <laughs> And then the, the last thing I'm going to be doing is I'm going to the Particle Spectra Conference in San Francisco this week. That's going to be fun. So I actually, I think when this podcast goes live, I will be there. Woo. And they, they're going to have a bunch of workshops for IoT hardware and software. And I'm I'm looking forward to that. It's going to be a lot of fun. That's cool. Uh, do, you, do you have any specifics of what you're going to be doing while you're there? Or are you just kind of like wander around? So they got some like uh, talks and stuff that I'm going to go to. And then there is a couple workshops. Brandon uh, Satram, I think. Yeah, Satrum, uh, who was on the podcast a couple episodes ago, like 20 or 30 episodes ago. He is giving a talk about mesh networking. And so I'm going to go see that. And uh, I think it's like a hands on. So like we'll have devices and get to program. them. Oh, wow. That sounds like fun. Get dangerous. Yeah. How many how many days are you going to be out there? I'm going to be there from Tuesday to Thursday. Okay, okay. Yeah, so I fly back uh, Thursday night.
0: Okay, so on uh, next week's podcast, you'll be able to give us all an update of all the cool little gizmos you played around with? Oh, yeah, yeah, totally do that. All right, sweet. And I guess uh, you'll be feeding the Slack channel with uh, all kinds of cool stuff, right? Oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, I can't wait. It's 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 one of the first conferences I'm uh, going to be going to. I mean, the last one I went to was like like Maker Fair, like four years ago, or three years ago. <laughs>
0: yeah, you and I attended Maker Fair Houston uh, a
1: few years yeah, ago. Yeah,
0: I think that was probably three years ago,
1: two. Yeah, about like three years ago. Yeah. yeah. I can't wait. <laughs> you sound so excited. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just tired right now. <laughs> yeah, no, I feel you. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. oh, man, I got to fly out there now. And,
0: and you got to wake up super early tomorrow.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Steven. Yeah, that's me. What are you working on? Um, More
0: of the Vox in the Box stuff. Um, I've been kind of talking about that for the past couple of weeks. So um, I got the PCB layout done for the first iteration of the Vox in a Box tester, which for those who don't know, it's a, basically I've made a power amp and a power supply in a pretty small box. It's about 3.6 inches by 2.6 inches. Uh, That'll all fit inside of an aluminum enclosure. And I've got a 12.6 volt, Power supply, a 350 volt power supply, an 18 volt power supply, and a 30 watt power amp all inside this little box. So I finished the layout mm, yesterday, I think. Well, I mean, technically, I did a few more things. I always do a few more things when I'm doing a layout. You know, I always look at it and be like, nah, I want a couple more little things. Like it's it's kind of like, yeah, maybe people won't like this, but it's kind of like artwork in my opinion where it's you, you never really finished, you just abandon it, you know?
1: <laughs> this is a uh, four-layer board. It is a
0: four-layer board. I, originally, I was going to do a two-layer board, but I opted to do a four-layer because there was a couple of interesting little things I wanted to do with
1: it. That ground plane.
0: Uh, multiple ground planes. Uh, this is sort of the first time I've done... A, a whole bunch of split ground planes, like a, like we'll, we'll post up the pictures of the layers in the Slack channel and on the um, the show notes for this episode. But uh, if you want to check out the layers that I did, I've got some sections that have ground planes on top, some that have internal ground planes. I have routing in between, and the way I really I ap-
1: see a star ground too. Yeah, that's
0: right. So the way I approach this layout is. I have multiple subsections or sub-circuits that the only thing that they really share is ground and power. And I, because most of the you know the analog circuitry that will drive or communicate with the power supplies in the amp are going to be external to the box, I kind of designed three separate circuits, one being the heater circuit, which is the 12.6 volts at 600 milliamps. The other one is the 350 volt at 10 milliamp power supply, and then the power amp. Each one of them, I treated them separately in terms of how I grounded them. I followed, you know, as many of the rules, if not all of the rules from the data sheet as I could. And so some of them have ground planes on top. Some have ground planes internal. Some of them have multiple ground planes where they're via stitched out the wazoo. Uh, I just tried a whole bunch of different things. Well, I shouldn't say tried. I, I I I treated them all differently and treated them all in the way that each one likes to be treated. In a way, the one thing that I did differently that I'm I'm hopeful to try with this is each one of those circuits has its own basic ground chunk. Yeah, I guess you can say where it's it's individual by itself, and I have connections on the outside of the box that allows me to access that specific ground plane. So, like the high voltage three hundred and fifty. Uh, supply, I have a terminal block that allows me to connect directly to that ground. So if I want to return current to that ground, I just connect there. But on the bottom layer of the board, I have traces that all go to a center stud that's in the middle of the board. So I made a very specific star ground that everyone shares together. And I have terminal blocks that go directly to that star ground also. So when we're building test circuits, we can see what grounding works best. Do we want to ground it directly to the power amp or would it be better to ground to the star uh, ground? And then eventually everything flows from the star ground out the uh, DC jack. So I wanted to build this thing such that we could test, you know, other circuits and more to the analog stuff. So we have all the power and all the, the amplifier stuff, but I also wanted to be able to test different ground topologies as opposed to having to, you know, re-spin a board every time we want to try that. I just gave options with it. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's a cool little board. Um, After the podcast, I think I'm going to press go on it, um, unless Parker finds any issues (laughs) with it right now. But Do you have rat
1: lines still there?
0: Yes, I do. There's actually two rat lines uh, available, and that's because I'm playing outside the rules of Diptrace. Um, Diptrace is usually really, really explicit about its rat lines, and it'll be very upset if you don't do the, follow those rat lines. Um, Diptrace does not have a good way of doing milled slots in pads. So when you define a component that needs a milled slot that is a through-hole pad, Diptrace doesn't like the top and the bottom being the same thing Uh, with a milled slot in the, in the bottom. So what ends up happening is say, if I have a component uh, that has a, a specific milled slot and I want it to be ground in a lot of EDA tools, you can, you can select that, Hey, this is a through hole pad with a milled slot and it will consider both the top pad and the bottom pad as ground dip trace will let you only pick the top or the bottom as ground. And then it'll throw all these errors saying you're trying to mill in the center of a pad. Well, I know in reality, the top and the bottom are ground and it's going to be a plated hole. So I sometimes go outside the, the boundaries of the DRC because I know exactly what's happening, but it'll, you know, better than I it. know better than it in this situation. So it's telling me that my grounds aren't connected, but they really are. Uh, and at the same time, I, I did a modification. I, I broke the rules pretty hard here. I made a modification that it is not reflected in my schematic I, I added a Shame. an offboard switch with, and the whole reason why I did uh, I didn't go to the schematic is because I didn't feel like drawing up another component to do what I wanted to do. So if you see off the DC jack, the 18 volt goes off to a pad that's like a through hole wire pad, and then there's another pad that comes back to the rest of the 18 volt circuit. I'm just gonna offboard wire to a uh, toggle switch. Switch. I just I yeah, didn't is that your power switch. I, right. So it's very it's very, very simple and it, it that's five minutes worth of work, but of course now it doesn't match my schematic, so dip trace is also, you know, crapping its pants saying, Hey, everything is wrong here. No, it's fine. It's okay. I'm willing to break the rules when it's simple stuff like that. Um, especially because I'm, it's not like I'm going to production with this. This is a you know, a one off thing. One so. off
1: kind of thing, yeah. I like how in your inner layer one mm-hmm. you've got this like guard trace.
0: So, yeah, over on the, okay, so over on the- uh, Is that for the audio? Yes, the, that's that's the input audio. There's, so there's, there's a positive and a negative. It's a differential signal. And what I tried to do is I tried to keep my two input signals as far away from the two switching power supplies as possible. On top of that, it has a ground plane on the top layer. It is completely surrounded by via stitching, in in its layer, which is layer number two, and then on layer number three, there's another ground layer underneath it. So the two input traces for the amplifier are surrounded, top, bottom, left, and right, entirely with ground. Uh, so I basically tried to, you know, sort of make like pseudo coax out of the PCB.
1: And uh, I wonder. I bet you that's going to work pretty well. It should.
0: Yeah. It, just because I want to make sure that all the switching noise is just completely gone and I added a couple features like uh, there's some resistor swapping that if you want to you can change the the frequency of the class d amplifier by just you know pulling legs high or low so I just have a hand like an array of resistors where uh, and there's like codes on the on the silk screen that tell you you know populate this if you want one megahertz or populate this if you want 500k or whatever so there's a couple of things I want to try and um, hopefully I can find what frequency works best with the lowest noise, mainly because my traces right now are running next to the output filters on the Class D amplifier. So I, I spent a lot of time making sure that those traces were as protected as possible.
1: Mm-hmm. And they're out of the, the traces are out of the current path too. I'm looking at the return current paths of that Class D and they're out of the way. So it should be pretty quiet. That's that's the goal. And, and
0: uh, in the middle of the board, there's a section that is for the high voltage switching power supply. And um, it actually has its own like ground stitching. And that's actually from the data sheet. I see that. Yeah. Um, So there's like, it's kind of neat. TI designed the chip pretty well where the left side, basically all the pins on the left side are the low noise section and all the pins on the right side are the high noise section or the switching currents really. So you can treat the left side of the chip and the right side of the chip as separate grounds, effectively. Eventually, they all come back together, but you make this really nice ground island that's all surrounded by vias, and you know basically it's a ground trap in a way. And you cl- you treat that as super super clean, and you connect that over to the main ground for that sub circuit at one location, which is the ground for the IC itself, the ground pin. And uh, gotcha. so hopefully that'll turn out to be really nice. I, I For that section, I referenced the data sheet, which they have some images of circuits that they did. And I followed something pretty similar to what they did in their example evaluation board. So I'm assuming that should work pretty well. This is also the chip that we were discussing last week where the app note for it, if you look at the circuit board that the guy designed for the app note, it's, it looks like garbage, which is, yeah. I mean, I love it because it works super well, but what I designed here is like tenfold better than what l- it looked like on that app note. So <laughs> I'm assuming this will work really, really well.
1: And one more thing i I found. Um, so on, on inner inner one, inner inner copper one on those orange fat traces, is there a reason why you got a little nub sticking in there?
0: Uh, that's an artifact of dip trace that uh, after I generated the Gerbers, I saw it and I was just like, I don't I don't want to get rid of it. I don't care. It doesn't matter. D- dip trace put a little uh, a little extra stub trace coming out of one of the pads and it doesn't interfere with anything. So I that's that's that stub trace is called Stephen is lazy. Ah, uh, that would bug the shit. Out of me. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of other things that bug the uh, bug the shit out of me, and more like like the via stitching. I obviously went super OCD on that and got anal with it. Yeah,
1: and I I would on. I'm finding everything wrong with this with this layer. Oh man, inner uh, inner one, you got this like a uh, ground like island. So you you know what, what you were talking about your your switcher there, but just to the bottom of that you've got this little stick of a ground. Yeah, you probably should just get rid of that.
0: Uh okay. I, I don't. Because it's just an antenna. Oh, I I see what you're getting at. Um, maybe I don't know. It's just it's just a ground that is part of the ground plane. That
1: yeah, it's a it, it's an uh, antenna. I bet you that's going to pick up something from that switcher. <laughs>
0: Well, you know what? I'll leave it and we'll find out.
1: Okay. <laughs> and it's on the
0: inside, though, so you can't cut it. Oh, you could drill it out.
1: <laughs> just punch oh, I've, I've done
0: it before. Yeah, no, it, it's small enough that you could totally punch a hole through that. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe just for you, I'll I, even if this works well, I'll record before, punch a hole through that one little stem, and then record after it and see if it changed.
1: Yeah, see if you can pick up anything. We should, you should totally do that, see that actually will make a difference,
0: maybe, so yeah that's that's what I've been working on. um I'm gonna place an order tonight, maybe I'll have it by next podcast, maybe not i don't I don't remember It's like a four to five day turnaround, and there's a weekend in between now and then, so I doubt I'll have it by then, but who knows? yeah, are you gonna stencil it yep um we're I'm gonna buy. I think I'm going to buy Enig on this one. I usually don't get Enig when I'm just building by hand, but myself and the other guy who's helping me at work, we're both going to build one, uh, each of us. So I think I'm just going to get Enig, get a good stencil. We'll we'll do lead-free paste and just toss it in our oven at work. And I, I, because the ICs, especially the Class D amplifier, has a huge power pad underneath it, I'd rather the oven take care of that yeah. than me. Yeah.
1: And- and because of that big pad going to enig is going to be better for your co coplanerness of that of that area. <laughs> yeah, right. There's got to be a word for that. I like that
0: co coplanerness. Yeah, co- <laughs> <yeah.
1: laughs> <laughs> well, cuz yeah, cuz if you have the the hassle, it, that part could just be, you know, tipped a bit and not solder right.
0: Right, right, yeah. So um, I actually already have a use for this. I mean, the the whole idea of this box in a box is we're just developing a fun little thing that we'll play with. But a friend of mine at work actually just purchased a Rotary Leslie cabinet, which if you haven't seen those, go check them out. They're super freaking cool. And if you ever have a chance to actually hear one in real life, do it. They're really, really super cool. Uh, A Leslie cabinet, usually connects to an organ and, you know, it produces that rock organ kind of sound or the blues organ kind of sound that you you've heard on a gazillion records though. They have typically an onboard amplifier that runs the whole cabinet and they don't usually take a low level signal. They take a, a higher level signal that, you know, communicates with the the original organ. Well, he's got this Leslie cabinet but he wants to be able to plug something else into it. So effectively, all this boils down to is he needs a preamp. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, we're designing a Vox in a box. Why don't we make you a Leslie cabinet preamp using this Vox in a box system? So we're, we're going to give that a try with him and see how that works so out. So this
1: thing is a, I'm trying, I'm looking at a GIF of it working. So it's spinning a horn at the top and then it's uh-huh. spinning a, I guess a, def, a sound a reflector. around Yep. Okay.
0: Yep. And so th- it has a motor that turns on both a horn and a, and a like a, a reflector down at the bottom. And there's a speaker that faces downward, mm-hmm. basically. So uh, you can, you there's a, a couple ways to, you know, work with them, but there's like foot pedals and things like that, where you can change the speed of the rotation. So you can hit a note or a handful of notes on a keyboard and then change the speed of the rotation, and you get a Doppler kind of effect. Gotcha. And it kind of like throws the, the sound, you know, as the horn spins around, it throws it in different places around the room, and you get a really cool like warbling effect. And it's it's one of those effects that you can simulate it, you know, electronically. But You can try to simulate even it. Even simulating it, That the problem with simulating it is like, you, if you play it through a static speaker that's just pointed in one direction, you're just simulating it. The reality of a true Leslie is it's tr- actually something spinning around. And it's just – it's basically impossible to truly get. It's it's not basically impossible. It's completely impossible. And they sound absolutely incredible. So, if you, like I said, if you get a chance to go check one out
1: – Ah, uh, so that's why you said don't check it out on YouTube because you're going to be playing through normal speakers – so you, ha- you have to be there with one in the room. Yeah. Gotcha.
0: Yeah. You'll, you'll, you'll get the idea of what's going on, but the like the true like meat of it, it's just you have to be there. Gotcha. So ne- ne- if you ever get a chance to uh, go to uh, visit Josh's studio, he's got one there, and I'm sure he'd be
1: happy to give it a whirl for you. Yeah, man. Come by anytime. Oh, you should make headphones. That's too many ones. <laughs> Because reasons, <laughs> yeah. Because reasons, you totally need another project.
0: Yeah, need another project. And the entire reason to have Leslie rotary headphones is so that you can accurately listen to a Leslie on YouTube, right? Yes, <laughs> that's the only reason.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I really like that. Yeah. Oh, but then it would have the rotation would have to sync up as well. Oh, geez, yeah. Oh man, it's, go yeah. figure. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. It, it's, good luck on that. Completely that one. forget about this idea. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. No more. Fe- <laughs> we're, we're, we're both not going to feature creep ever again, ever,
1: right? Ever cross my heart and hope to die. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, on to the RFO.
1: RFO. So, this is near and dear to my heart. Parallax, the creators of the Parallax Propeller Basic Stamp, educational stuff. The Propeller 2 has been rumored to come out since before Macrofab. And so the Propeller 2 is basically a beefed-up version of the Propeller. The Propeller is an eight-core microcontroller that runs spin and C, uh, and it's it's a really neat microcontroller architecture, and I always really liked it. The Propeller 2, I just was going through my twitter feed a couple days ago and they apparently got production samples and they work.
0: Oh my god. This is
1: like 8 years after they said they were going to do like the prop 2 and it's finally here now. So
0: so what's different about the prop 2 from the prop 1?
1: So the big the big difference is speed. It they went from 80 megahertz to 180 megahertz which is pretty blazing fast for a microcontroller. The Also the other performance boost, I, th- I think they were able to do this. I ha- didn't see the documentation yet for it, but at the first prop takes four cycles per instruction. So you're effectively only running you know, 20 megahertz or 20 MIPS. Apparently they have that down to one cycle per instruction now, so you're actually running 180 MIPS. Wait, what? For every instruction? For every instruction. Wow. But I read that like four years ago. Oh, okay. I don't know if that's actually true, but I, I, I need to go look more into if that's actually true. Um, because
0: if that, if that is true, they just like exploded. That's like nine times the speed yeah, now. Yeah. Uh,
1: another big thing is they went from 32 to 64 I.O. So that you have two 32-bit banks and then they started adding more hardware peripherals so the original prop pretty much just had like a UART, and then it had a uh like a uh what was it it's like a tv no no they didn't have that in there there's some other kind of peripheral that's built into the io on the prop one i can't remember what it is but now they added like a lot of stuff like serial, and they added uh built in USB they have uh DAX and and ADCs and, and stuff like that built in so that's pretty cool they call them smart pins and each pin is a smart pin so you have 64 of these like super you know hybrid IO pins which is kind of interesting
0: do do they have it where you, any pin can connect to any function i
1: think so Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Well, it, I think it's because every, every pin is identical. So it can yeah. just do anything. It's not like a crossbar like in a EFM8 or a some of those picks. No, not picks. PSOCs. Um, PSOCs have a crossbar, too, where you, you can, like, connect the UART to, like, a couple different pins, you know? Right. But th- I think this STMs
0: is... like that, too.
1: I think this is because every single pin has all this hardware in it. So that, that's kind of cool. And now it has a debugger as well. It has an onboard debugger. And I think it it probably works through the USB. So that'd be cool. So, yeah. I'll, I'll, we'll put the link for the uh, short form data sheet that they have for it, which has like the, you know, specs and stuff for it.
0: So did they just announce this?
1: Uh, They've been working with the community a lot on it. Uh, The Parallax Propeller community. Uh, I just kind of saw that oh they have production samples let me go looking at it because it's like i kind of you know i always thought like basically since it's, you know about three years ago i thought that they would never make it basically like it's been so long Yeah, you
0: you even made a meme about yeah that, i didn't right?
1: make a meme about that like five years ago <laughs>
0: <laughs> you need to post that meme that's yeah it's pretty great so um the the die in the original prop the the actual silicon die looks super freaking cool because it was it was not necessarily design step and repeat in a in a way like a guy actually like drew it all out which you know that's
1: that's kind of common chip uh chip gracie design the hand laid out that chip
0: it looks incredible the the die and i would love to see what the prop two looks like
1: yeah how, how convenient is your you're a chip designer and your name is chip
0: just (laughs) just a slightly convenient so so does the is is the so the original kind of like gimmick of the prop one is that it had what
1: what do they call them cogs cogs which are just eight cores and so how that works is the each cog has its own memory but it's, it's really small it's just enough to like do scratch work basically and so whenever it needs to go to system memory it has it's a hub and so all the system memory is round robin. So each for every one out of eight cycles, the a cog has access to it. And so use sometimes it's really fast because then like if a cog goes, hey, I need this address and it's on its turn, it can get it right away. But if it's not, it can potentially have to wait seven cycles before it can get there. So it's kind of weird that way. Uh, And the thing is, with the original prop, there's no built-in hardware, really. And so you basically build everything in hardware, uh, in software. So, like, an I2C driver, you don't have a serial hardware, you know, UART or spy bus in there. You actually build a bit bang, you know, spy driver. Yeah, but a lot of people like it because of that. Yeah, I, I do. I I think it's really fast in terms of uh developing, you know, software for embedded stuff. Just because you don't have to sit in the data sheet to figure out, oh, what register do I need to hit to make it do this? You're just like, oh, I'm just gonna bit bang it and then, you know, spit out eight bits and it works.
0: Yeah, but, but at that point it's almost entirely based on how good you are at writing code.
1: True, true. It is very um user dependent? User dependent, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, a lot of people so write assembly the- for it still.
0: Wow, that's
1: because in crazy- assembly you can get one clock cycle per instruction. I think. Yeah, that sounds right. It's spin that takes four instructions, or uh, four cycles per instruction. Ah, uh, okay. And so, so, so does the prop two have eight cogs, or is it? It's still eight. Yeah, I always, always wanted them to like basically double everything and have, you know, 16 cogs, but they kept it at eight. Apparently, the cogs are really big. Like, they take a lot of uh, real estate. So. Sure. I think the Prop 2. That's expensive. Yeah, it's expensive. I think the Prop 2 supports, like, native SD card booting and stuff like that. It's got some really interesting features they've added into it. So I can't wait to finally get my hands on one.
0: Yeah. Well, speaking of that, uh, is there any kind of idea on when you know might be able to play with one
1: i don't know yet uh roy eltham which is one of my friends who does a lot of development work with them um he was like yeah i can get you one so i'm like okay cool so hopefully i get one yeah sweet and uh run it through a reflow <laughs> do a do a first look podcast yeah, first look podcast and speaking of that we should invite ken and chip gracie on the podcast.
0: That would be really great I'd love to I'd love to hear about the uh, the development and I'd, I'd actually love to hear about like what th- their method is and how they go through it top to bottom especially with the fact that this chip is really really unique in a way no one else is doing it that way so you know what are the difficulties and what do they go through with that that would be a ton of fun so if anyone knows them and wants to
1: suggest well, it, I think I've met I've met Ken before. So I'd probably just ask him on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, well, that works too. <laughs> yeah. Cool. But um, I, I'd like to know more about, uh, man, we can make that like an Uber episode of like talk about the prop and stuff like that, like the development, the history, all that stuff, and then do another one of just like chip design and manufacturing. Oh, that would be great. Because yeah. I don't know a uh, lot about, I, I actually, I design yeah. chips and and you design chips in um college as well. I never got mine made but I did layout what is it what very what VLSI I think is what they call it. Uh yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: Well, v- very high density layout, VHDL.
1: Yeah, that's right. I think VLSI is something else. No, very large scale integration is VLSI. And that's that's what I did. I think I think it's different um, terminology. Scales, yeah, different scales. Uh, e- they they represent different scales. Gotcha. Yeah, you're probably right. So, yeah, that'd be really cool. But
0: but uh, but I bet you these guys could tell us the difference between them. Yes, exactly.
1: <laughs> and they were talking about uh, if if the prop two does really well, they're, they're talking about going to a smaller manufacturing process, like 27 nanometer. And they said that simulations show that the chip can do like a gigahertz.
0: Wow, that'd be cool. A gigahertz with one
1: uh, execution per clock cycle? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that'd be crazy. That's pretty sweet.
0: But I bet you you the the price goes through the damn roof when you do that.
1: Probably, for the masks and just the manufacturing of it. Oh, yeah, 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 for sure. And I think it pulls... It was like at, at 180 megahertz, chip was testing it, and it was running full tilt so everything doing everything it was like 980 milliamps at 1.8 volts so it's it's pulling some juice okay yeah that's thirsty yeah <laughs> well, i mean i yeah, yeah, think yeah. it's eight processors basically eight microcontroller processors in their book just it. ripping away yeah, yeah. so they said so it gets a little warm
0: <laughs> well i mean that's what package does it come in
1: i think it only is going to come in like a qfn or QFP. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Like an 84 or a hundred something pin.
1: Yeah. Package probably like a hundred like and uh, pick 32 is 144. It's probably like a hundred ish pin package. Right. At a hundred maybe.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, if you think about that, that's okay. So if it's 980 milliamps or whatever you said yeah, at 1.8 volts, that's, that's, you know, between a, a watt and a half to two Watts. Right. So that's <laughs> in a little tiny package like that. Yeah. It's going to get real hot. I think it
1: actually has a pin out on that. On this uh dropbox link. Let me take a look at that.
0: Yeah. I will join you on this dropbox link. I guess we'll have to supply that Dropbox yeah,
1: link. Yeah, it's also. got it's a hundred pins. So we were right. Yep. 100 okay, pins. there we go. And it's got a little diagram of like the cogs and, and the hub RAM and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, okay. So all the so if it's got sixty four I out IOs, all the others are just power and ground and pretty much other okay they call them smart pins yeah
1: cool so they got DACs and adcs but all of them have all this stuff
0: oh look at that it has a huge it has an exposed ground pad for for thermal
1: <laughs> oh yeah it needs it
0: <laughs> yeah for sure
1: but yeah each pin has a eight bit DAC. each pin has a delta sigma adc it's just crazy. Wow. Really? Yeah.
0: Like, and you can have them all running at the same time. I wonder
1: if it's muxed internally or what? I don't know yet. I, I bet you it's muxed because that would probably be so expensive to have it on each pin. Wouldn't it be
0: cool to do 64 ADCs? 64 ADCs reads in parallel at the same time.
1: Yeah. That would be cool. That would be cool. That would be really so we'll cool. We'll have to see. They'll... If we can get Chip and and Ken on, they'll probably set us straight.
0: (laughs) They'll be like, you guys got this all wrong. Yeah, all wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, more reason to have them on.
1: Yeah. And then last on the RFOs, kind of a discussion. Luke Robertson from the Slack channel asks, how do you search for technical information? I am specifically thinking in regards to forms. I realize there's a niche form for everything, but I was wondering if there were a few standouts people prefer and presumably ones that are not laced with kids looking for answers on their homework. And he mentions ones that he uses, which are eevblog.com and diystompboxes.com.
0: Huh. Well, I, in, in the what you just kind of read from his thing there, it sounds like you sort of answered your own question what I mean by that is you already know that there's a whole bunch of them with kids looking for answers to their homework, but the only reason why you know that is because you did search and like walk through <laughs> things. And then you found EV blog and DIY stomp boxes, which those are more specific. And so when it comes to searching for technical technical information, I mean, it, exactly that way, you know, it, we've, I've personally weeded through a bunch of forums where I'm like, well, you know, maybe one out of every thousand posts has something worthwhile. Uh, so I don't go to those ones as much, I suppose. I don't know. How about you, Parker?
1: Uh, so what I used to do was, there used to be a tab in Google search called discussions. And you would search for something and click discussions and it would just pull up forms and stuff like that. And that was, a you would search for a part number and click discussions and then you would find everyone who's ever talked about that thing on the internet. And then Google <laughs> got rid of it. Wow. It was and too powerful. I think, well, I think it was because people knew that it would just basically bypass ads. Right. Because now if you search for a part number, the first link, like the first two pages for a part is generally how to buy it. Yep. And then maybe the PDFs don't in there and it takes a long time to get to where people are actually talking about it. Um, I found searching like a part number and then like form in there will kick you know it will actually look for a URL that has a form form in the URL and that that tends to help um, I don't really have like forms I just go to every day. Uh, I do I do read hackaday every day and then I read all about circuits. I, I, re- I guess I read more websites and forms.
0: So sure, like, like
1: yeah. Electronics Weekly and EE e. Times and all those guys, I I basically look at those every day, um, and then I actually pay attention to Chris Gamble's uh the Amp Hour Twitter feed because he usually has some pretty good links in there to read. Um, I think you some know, people actually, at, I think that some people at work use uh, Hacker News, but I tend to think that the community there is kind of toxic, so I don't... don't
0: (laughs) Or Stack Overflow,
1: right? Yeah. Stack Overflow is not bad. Uh, Stack Overflow, you
0: get a whole range of stuff there. Yeah. Uh, You know, and I think, uh, actually come to think about it uh, with this question, a little bit deeper into it, I think it actually, uh, one of the big things to consider is how you actually search for something in terms of like what you actually write. Because if you ask a question in say Google, that's like, show me a constant current source or something like that. Like I'm just using that as an example. Then you're going to get a lot of like really generic ideas about what a constant current source is. But if you say, show me a constant current source for this particular type of circuit, you know, if you get more specific, then you're going to start finding more of those forums where people are talking more intelligently about the thing that you are specifically looking for, as opposed to just a Wikipedia page that says, this is
1: this yeah this is a current source
0: right exactly and it it gets even better if you say something like constant current source and put in a part number that you know is part of that constant current source or a very like widely known or used part well then you start to get really specific you start to get people who have actually built that thing and you can see pictures of it so uh, i think the rabbit hole you start with the like cast the net wide with technical information like constant current source then you might find something that allows you to dig a little bit deeper with, okay, now I'm looking for a current source in this situation with this part number, then you'll get exactly what you want.
1: The the only problem with that is you eventually narrow it down to that one form post and the person sp- has the same question. You know, this is our our good friend Viper. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> But... The, I'll never know you yeah the <laughs> the best the best I think we said this last time too though but the best ones are like they respawn oh I fixed it and that's it not how <laughs> because then you know it's possible right but you still don't know yep.
0: that's even that's, worse the, than, that's the
1: worst yeah that's the worst don't even tell me you fixed it yeah if 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 that's the case yeah yeah <laughs> So, actually, I had a moment like that. Okay. Where I was looking on Reddit, and someone posted, I fixed it, and they didn't post the fix. And this was, like, a Reddit post, like, five years ago. Yeah. I actually, and his, his account was, like, he hadn't, like, posted in, like, three years. So, I just shot up you know, a PM over him, over to him. And he responded in a day. No lie. With the answer. And I'm like, yes! It was like a Jeep question, but like, I was just amazed. You do know Viper. Yeah, I found my Viper. (laughs) (laughs) I think we need to make t-shirts that say
0: something like that. I found my Viper. Actually, wait, no, I just realized that's a really awful thing for a (laughs) (laughs) t-shirt.
1: Don't be a Viper. Post your answers online. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, maybe we could make that new T shirt sometime. It's got
0: to be like Viper One Two Seven or something like that.
1: Yeah, yeah. Oh, cool. cool. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that was the macfab Engineering podcast. We were your
1: host Stephen Craig and Parker Dolman. Take it easy. Later, everyone. Say I didn't forget that time. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, you are a listener for downloading our show. If you have a cool idea, project, topic, or viper-like story that you want Steven and I to discuss, tweet us at MacFab or email us at podcast at macfab dot com. Also, check out our Slack channel because if you post answers there, you won't become Viper One Four Two. If you're not subscribed to the podcast yet, click that subscribe button. That way you get the latest episode right when it releases. And please review us wherever you listen as it helps the show stay visible and helps new listeners not find Viper.